Good morning. My name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's my pleasure to bring you God's word this morning. And on the weekend, right after Easter Sunday, where we got a chance to worship our risen Lord, to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. I hope that you had a wonderful worship as I did. And as we come to this time the week after, perhaps one of the questions that you may have that I know I have sometimes as a pastor is, so now what? What's next? Well, I want to suggest to you in one word, discipleship. It is to follow him. And so today's text comes from the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. This is the reading of God's word. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. You know, for many, the words salvation and discipleship are two separate thoughts. However, in the Bible, we don't find them as separate thoughts as they are intertwined and very connected by Jesus himself, who not only calls people to believe in him, but to follow him. The discipleship is only possible in the context of a relationship. That as we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and we who are saved, that after that relationship begins, it then becomes the relationship of teacher and disciple. One of the things that a lot of people get confused is that it's something that I believe And then how we choose to live seems to be so separate. In Titus 2, 11 and following, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in this particular passage. And he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of, our glo- of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The disconnect for many has been a handicap in the church. The people often look to Jesus and the gospel as a means to heaven, that it's about getting to heaven And they don't realize that Jesus said he is the life. That whatever eternal life is, it's not a destination. It's a person. You know, this confusion is so real. Let me illustrate 
There's something Pastor Daniel Dinko Kim mentioned last week in, in his Good Friday sermon, that some people think that maybe perhaps it would be ideal, like the thief who died on the cross next to Jesus, to accept Jesus on their deathbed. That they could live their life whichever way they want it, live it out, whether it's even in their own desires, even in sin, and just do whatever they want, gain whatever they want, live in all of life's pleasures, and then on their deathbed to receive Jesus Christ. Or would it be actually more fruitful if maybe you were to receive Christ and trust in him, say at the age of 15 or 16, and then for the rest of your life, God willing, for the next 70 or 80 years, that you would live in this relationship with Jesus. Whether it, whether it be worship, living a life that is pursuing him and knowing him, and maybe even in the practice of life, growing more godly. I think sometimes we get confused that the very definition of eternal life, as Jesus stated in John 17, is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he had sent. It's not a destination. It's knowing God. And so Jesus is either your ticket to heaven or he's your greatest love. Either he's a means to your end or he is himself that very end. And so as we look at our passage today, a little background of the book of Mark and the gospel of Mark, that Mark presents his story of the gospel, not so much about what Jesus' teachings were, but about his ministry, his doing, his acts of works of, for the kingdom of God. And so the implication of reading God's, Mark's gospel is it's not just about hearing these stories. It's about living out life and following Christ. And not only does he present who Christ is, but he presents Jesus as Christ as well as the Son of God. Even the term Christ in Greek means the anointed royal figure, the Messiah, who comes to administer God's rule on earth and to rescue Israel from all its oppressors and troubles. And so Mark presents not just a king, but the king. And so from our text today that we read, I have two observations, two main observations that I want to speak from. And the first one is that the gospel is able to save because it is the plan of a sovereign God. In verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The key word here in this passage is the word must. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And he must rise again. That these, that these descriptors of who the Messiah is was something new to Peter and the disciples. In fact, to many Jews at the time. That whatever they thought the Messiah was, they thought the Messiah would come to reign as king. But this Messiah wasn't, didn't come to reign, he came to die. This wasn't a king who was reigning on a throne. This was a king who came to die on a cross. And so John Piper, in a message that he gave at the Gospel Coalition in 2019, entitled, Unashamed to be Scorned with Jesus, he spoke 
There is no gospel of salvation for us hopeless sinners if God did not have sovereign control over the innocent suffering of Christ, the sinful rejection of Christ, and the wicked murder of Christ, the suffering, rejection, and killing of the Son of Man without the plan, prophecy, and performance and purpose of God in it is no gospel. I agree with him. I mean, if all that was just a bad circumstance, a, a good man got killed, uh, s- some bad luck that happened along the way, uh, he said some things to anger the religious leaders of his day and got killed, then that's just a bad, sad story. But what makes it the gospel and what brings us life is that this was God's plan from the beginning. And it caught Peter off guard. In verse 32, it says that Jesus, he said this plainly. He didn't shroud it in parables. He didn't make uh, any stories that would make it difficult to understand. And as he made it plain that this Christ that Peter had just confessed in verse 29 would actually suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. When he spoke plainly, it's very clear that times God's Wisdom and plan doesn't always make sense to men. Yet to think otherwise is to think like men and even Satan. When Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him, I want you to understand what's happening here. Peter's not just disagreeing with Jesus. Peter is not just having some kind of trouble with what he said. He brings Jesus aside and he rebukes him. This is the same word that's used when Jesus spoke against and condemned the demons. So this is a strong thing that Peter would say to Jesus. May it not be. This can't happen to you. What are you saying? And so the question obviously that arises from this text is why would Peter do such a thing? Why would he say and re- this and rebuke Jesus, the very person whom he called Christ just a few verses before? Tim Keller in his book, Jesus is King, suggests a few thoughts. He says, when Peter hears that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and will entail suffering, that he's almost certain that it's not just going to be suffering for Jesus, but for him as well. And so he becomes angry. Why? Because this is not his agenda. And he goes on to say that if your agenda is the end, then Jesus is just the means. And we're using him. But if Jesus is the king, you cannot make him your ends, a means to your end. You can't come to a king negotiating. You can't come to him and say, you know, I will follow you if, I will obey you if, because we don't speak to a king that way. We do as he says. And remember, this is not just a king who came in power, but a king on a cross who came to love, to die and to rise again. You know, when I read this part of the story, I understood Peter. Because like many of you, and like Peter, sometimes God's plan just doesn't make sense. There are many times in my life when I thought, you know, I'm not even God, and I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't allow this. When we see injustices, like the shootings in Atlanta and Colorado, and the recent killings and shootings that seem to be happening more frequently, We think, why would God allow this? When you see stories of of earthquakes and tsunamis, or whether you, you hear of people who are sick with cancer or heart disease, 
or even attending funerals of someone who's so young, maybe even a child, you're thinking, why? God, how could this be good? And as we think such thoughts and question God and his divine knowledge, the cross also made no sense to those who were following Jesus at the, at the day. That at his time when he predicted what was about to happen, it didn't make sense to his disciples. The, king was, the, the very Messiah was supposed to come and take over the authority of the powers that were governing over them. That they, he would be their, 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 their rescuer and the one who sets them free from all the political oppression of the Roman Empire. And instead, he says that he's going to die. It didn't make sense. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. I think perhaps if many of us, including myself, if we were in Peter's shoes, we probably would have done the same. And this is where I think I needed to repent and confess. And maybe you also. That there are times when we're angry at God because God's not following my agenda. I have plans. I have dreams. I have thoughts of what the way my life was supposed to be, the way things are supposed to turn out, and they're not. Friend, I want to ask you, are you angry at God? And if you are, what, what is it that made you so angry? What made, what made you drift from him? What made you move away and no longer come to him in prayer or even in worship? You know, trusting in him doesn't mean just following him and believing him in good times, but also the tough times and even the really tough times when it just doesn't make sense. And you know, one of the things that really helps me when I go through those moments of doubt and questions is that I think about the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, he gave everything to bring us salvation. Why would he then all of a sudden give us anything less for the days of our life. If there are things or people or dreams that are not best for me in, a, in, the, in accordance to God's sovereign plan and will, what he sees that I cannot see, then he's not going to follow my agenda. He's not going to follow my plan because he loves us too much. And although the cross seemed like it didn't make sense, it seemed like the worst thing that could possibly happen. We know now that it was the most beautiful, most wonderful thing that could have happened. And so this leads us to a teaching moment in verse 33. It says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the things of God, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's possible that the other disciples were thinking the same thing Peter was. And so Jesus took this moment, not only to rebuke Peter, but probably indirectly rebuking anyone else in the room or around him that were thinking the same thing. Jesus is not doing something mean. He's not trying to rebut Peter and his rebuke. He's actually doing a very loving thing. Because when someone is in error, the loving thing is to correct them. And here, we see Jesus correcting Peter, even in his rebuke. You know, God's word is so vital to help us understand and discern between truth and lies, between knowing God's thoughts and the thoughts of men, 
pursuing God's ways, which are so, high, so much higher and so much beyond us that without his word, we cannot know it. And so the must of the gospel, planned and prophesied and carried out by God's will, didn't make sense to those then. But as they trusted him and walked with him, as they walked with God by faith, they began to understand that the cross is where justice, the justice of God and the loving mercy of God came together. And so the first observation is that the gospel is able to save because it is the plan of a sovereign God. Secondly, that the gospel in action is a call to follow him. In verses 34 to 38, if the gospel is true and Jesus is truly the Messiah, what Jesus is calling here and asking and calling for his disciples is not replacing faith with what it means, but to reveal the essence of what faith really looks like. What does it look like to really trust him, to believe in him, and therefore to follow him? In verse 34, it says, And calling the crowd to himself, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This another teaching moment called everyone together, those the crowd as well as his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me. What's interesting is uh, the Greek word for come is, is the same Greek word for follow. So literally what you could read it as is, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, obviously the Bible translators didn't want to use the word follow twice. So they said, if anyone would come after me. But what we see here is sandwiched between these two words, this call to follow him, is the understanding first that we are to deny ourselves and secondly, to take up our cross. You know, a lot of times as Christians around the world, we use the term born again to describe who we are. And implied in that thought is that there's something that was before that is no longer And there is something that is new, that is born again now, that is now here. Not born in the uh, flesh, but born in the spirit. A new self must come into being. That at at this faith and confession, this new life found in Jesus Christ, that there is a dying of the old self. There is a denying of the old self and its habits, its ways, and its purposes, its dreams. That all of, us, all of it must be denied so that the new life may grow and flourish. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, he means that the self must be denied and even crucified. That there is a self that must die and be considered dead through denial. Jesus further explains what he's asking for in verses 35 to 37. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, what's interesting is that as we think about this, there are four implications that come from this statement and this call that I want us to consider. First of all, is that your identity changes. The word life here, that Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life will save it. The word life there is the word psyche, where we get, the, uh, where we get our word uh, psychology from. And what it denotes is your identity, your personality, your selfhood, what makes you distinct. 
And Jesus is not saying that I want you to lose your individual self. Jesus is saying, don't build your identity by connecting it to the things of this world. And so what he's calling us to do by following him is to change our identity in the sense that I don't find who I am through my job or because I got, finally got married or I have kids now or, or because I now have prestige and a title next to my name. Or I am rich all of a sudden and I have all this, this reputation among the people in my particular field. That this is not when I start to live and how I define myself. Jesus says this will never work. Because in every culture, identity, the sense of self and fulfillment of self is performance based. It's what I have to accomplish and achieve so that I may be seen in a certain way or accepted in a certain way. You will never fully be what you were intended to be if you seek it through the things that are created rather than the creator who made you. If you gain the whole world, will it be enough? If, if you have everything that you ever dreamed of, you ever wanted in life, Will that ever be enough? Is there ever enough of the things of this world? Is there ever enough fame? Is there ever enough money? Is there never a, ever enough accomplishments? Jesus says, no, it will never be enough. In fact, it's not even just worldly accomplishments. It could even pertain to religious accomplishments. That there are people who say, you know, I'm, I realize that I'm a sinner and I've sinned and I've, I've been living an immoral life and I will... I want to change the way I live. I want to go to church and be a good person, be a moral person, and then I will be good. I want you to know, friend, Jesus doesn't want you to exchange one performance-based life and identity for another. He wants you to kill it. He wants you to deny it so that your new identity in him is found in him and the gospel. We find these truths in a couple of familiar verses. One of them is Galatians 2.20, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And another verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, as you become a, a new person in Christ, this new identity, the old dies. It is crucified with Christ. And daily, we need to die to that old self, that old habits, that old way of life, the old way of thinking, the old way of behaving. And we are called to live anew in Christ. Taking your cross means for you to die to self-determination, die to your self-control, die to your self-agenda. You know, one of the best remedies for this I found in my life is prayer. Prayer. Because every time I come in prayer, I bow my head in submission to God. And after I make all my requests and say all my heart's concerns, I know that at the end I ask, but not my will, but your will be done. And submission to God, turning to him, means that whatever used to be, whatever I want, 
has to die so that whatever he wants will live in me. The second implication to this call to discipleship is that your life purpose and lifestyle changes. Remember in Titus 2.11 where it says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and instead to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. How we define life and how we choose to live that life changes as we follow Christ. You know, as I got a chance and a privilege during my younger years to travel on mission trips around the world, I've, I've met Christians in other countries. I've met young people in other countries where believing in Christ meant that they were kicked out of their home. That whoever they were, whatever life they, they knew before would truly be lost. Because in some parts of the world, to convert to Christianity, to become a Christian, to become a Christ follower and a Christ believer, means that whatever your identity, your family, your, your home would now be lost. I remember when I met a group of students at the University of Bangkok in Thailand, and they were Christians, I found out that as they made them profess their faith in Christ, that it also meant uh, being uh, excommunicated from their family and from their community, and they lived together in an apartment. It means that for believers in the West, that we ask ourselves this question of what is, what is it that we have foregone? What is it that has changed? What is it that because of Christ, something has changed from old to new? You know, baptism signifies the confession and beginning of a new life with Christ. But like the, the cultures of East, if you're a Buddhist that became a Christian, it's clear what you leave behind. You leave behind the worship and, and, the, and the following and the teachings of Buddha, and you're following Jesus. If you used to be a Muslim, but now you converted to Christianity, you're no longer reading the Quran and following the prophet Muhammad, but you're believing in Jesus Christ. And if you were a Hindu following millions of gods or whatever number of gods that your home used to follow, and now you are a Christian, you understood that it's no longer those gods, but it's Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask us for in America, when we made the decision to believe, but never thought much about the very gods that we left behind or the old self that must die. I want to ask you, what was left behind? What, was, what is being denied on a daily basis because we are saying yes to Jesus? Old habits, old passions, old desires, things we used to love and may, that maybe God was not pleased with, maybe even sinful, or even things like good things like work or family, children, friends, hobbies that now compete with God for our devotion, our love, and our desires. To follow Christ today is challenging because there's so many obstacles and so many things that we value in life that competes with our love and devotion to follow Christ. You know, it's kind of like marriage. Marriage taught me so much about a significant decision that has implications of life change. You know, my identity changed when I, when I got married. I wasn't just a single Jimmy. I was Mr. Han and there was a Mrs. Han. 
And what I realized that the implication of that also bled into my Mondays. Mondays, I used to go out and golf with a friend. But now, after I got married, Mondays became Costco runs and visits to Bed Bath & Beyond. How fun. (laughs) My lifestyle changed. No longer eating in front of the TV, but eating at the dining table with my wife and eventually my kids. That it was no longer working as long as I wanted, but coming home early enough to grab a meal, to eat a meal with the family or my spouse, and then to also understand that my whole life, not even just what I eat, but what time I slept, what I did throughout the day, became different because of some significant other. And because of that person that I married, I also got a chance to experience a whole new type of fulfillment One that included the love of another person. One that brought intimacy. One that forced me to grow up and change for the better. One that brought me a deeper and more mature sense of love. And not the puppy love I used to have as a young man or a teenager. No insult to those who are younger. But let's be clear. All the warm fuzzies, I don't feel that sometimes in love and marriage. Love and marriage feels like doing the dishes at 10.30 when my wife is tired. Love feels like taking a walk with her when I don't like to walk. Love means holding hands together and praying during times when we're so scared and worried. Don't be confused. You don't have to do anything or change anything to be accepted by Christ into his kingdom to be saved. He did all the work. But this willing decision to follow him That is something that you will make a decision about. And that following him as an expression of our faith and trust in him will be very different. Trusting Christ and loving him is like marriage. Our identity and lifestyle will change. Our purpose in life will change. Thirdly, the implication of following Jesus means that our values change. In verse 36 and 37, it says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? That word soul there is the same word again for life. It's psyche. And and Paul is asking, what value does a soul have? Can you compare it to anything in the world? You know, before Christ, I think if you're like me, I used to value living long, making a lot of money. You know, what was of value to me was comfort, to make enough money so I could be comfortable possessions, dreams fulfilled, like marriage and kids and prestige and wealth and enjoying all the things of life. But now in Christ, this new life in Christ, sometimes following him can lead to an unavoidable path. And one of those unavoidable paths is persecution. On December 30th, 2019, Pastor Wang Yi the pastor, the senior pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in China, was sentenced to nine years in prison for inciting subversion. He was preaching the gospel. And the choice that Pastor Yi made was a choice that in the world's eyes seemed foolish. But as a follower of Christ, it was wonderful. Of course, we can't imagine I can't imagine being in a prison for nine years away from my wife and children. But that is one of those, the costs, the inevitable paths of following Christ that Jesus speaks about. That as he suffered, we too will suffer. In fact, he warned his disciples that this would happen. 
In John 15, verse 18 and following, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, wor the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. I think one of the reasons why um, it's so hard to be a Christian in today's world is because we don't want to deny ourselves of comforts and pleasures. We, we don't want to deny ourselves of a, a quiet life sometimes. To take up our cross. To really die to ourselves and to die to those old things that used to mean so much to us. And it's not because those things are bad. But what do you choose if those things come to a head and you have to choose comfort or prison, preaching Christ or going to jail or being set free, whatever the challenges that you face? Jesus wants us to count the cost. And some of the costs comes with questions of what makes us glad. Does success include Jesus and his honor? What is your heart drawn to each day? What do you spend most of your time thinking about, worrying about, desiring? What would make you lose it if you lost it? What would unravel you if it were taken away? Whatever you value, Christ says that you need to value your soul as he does. In fact, value Christ above all. The fourth implication is, whose approval do you seek most? In verse 38, it says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To better explain this, John Piper, uh, in his message, he says, Jesus is making clear that there are two audiences for our lives. One is this adulterous and sinful generation. Adulterous mainly in the sense of finding less satisfaction in their maker than they do in the people and the things he made. That's adultery and the essence of sinfulness. The other audience is the coming triumphant son of man, his all-glorious father and millions of holy angels. And so the question for us is whose approval do we crave most? Whose praise are we seeking? You know, a lot of times in the Asian culture, in fact, most cultures, we seek the praise of our parents, of our peers, maybe even in the church of our leadership, our pastors, our spouse, even the praise of our children. And here what we want to understand is that especially in a day and age where there are people who look at Jesus and the church and the gospel as something to mock, to ridicule, and in some parts of the world to persecute, it is very clear that the call to follow him, to believe in him through the thick and thin of all that we live through, he calls us to remain faithful, to not be ashamed of him. You know, when we come to faith, 
We make a public profession. It's called a testimony. At Christ Central, it's called a story of grace. And this confession of faith that we recite every week, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, whether it's something that we believe together through the catechisms, it's something that we don't just do during worship, but it's something we are to do in public, that if asked, that we are glad to proclaim, we're glad to share, and that it's good that people around us in our workplace, in our neighbors, our friends, people we enjoy life with, that they know that we're a Christian and that they know what we believe and that we ought not to be ashamed that if anyone finds out that I'm a pastor, they shrink away from me. I, uh, sometimes I want to talk to them and share with them. I want to share with them what's been going on in my life, where I find hope and joy during the coronavirus and being locked down. And so as we think about these implications, I also have four suggestions, practical suggestions. They're not new to you, but I want, us to remind, I want us to remember again its importance. First of all, spending time in his word. The gospel begins with God, not me, not people. It's his power. It's his plan. It's his will. And we need to understand what his plan is. As you read through the Old Testament and then you read the Gospels and all the epistles that follow, you discover that this was planned. This is, the, this is in the hand of a sovereign God who made a plan to send his only son who, to fulfill this prophecy that he was speaking about all these years. And so to read, hear, memorize, study, and then teach it whether it's through Sunday school, to your kids, to share together in small groups, or maybe even to those who are called your neighbor, your co-workers, and your friends. Spend time in his word. It helps you to discern the deception of the enemy and the truth of God's will. Secondly, to pray, to build your relationship with Christ. In prayer, we recognize who's God and who's not. I know I'm not. And so the, the more we enter into prayer, the more our soul is reminded that he is God, that I, that I have a relationship with him, and that I seek to hear his voice through the word of God, and then to discern his, his presence and his love in these intimate moments called prayer, where we turn our heart to seek him and his will. The third thing is to serve others. If you want to kill the self, if you want to deny the self, I want to encourage you, serve other people. Serve your wife, your husband, serve your children, serve your community, serve other people. Serve a stranger for no reason other than just for Christ and his glory. And I want to tell you, every time you try to be a servant to someone, your sinful self, your old self will cry out, unfair, what about me? This is the struggle in most marriages. This is the struggle in most families. Everyone is talking about me, the self, instead of you, the other. There's no beautiful Christ-likeness that we could see demonstrated than when we see, what, when we see real people fulfilling the very purpose for which the Son of Man came. Because remember, Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if, he, if that was his mission statement, then man, I think it would be good if that became mine. The fourth one is stay in community. I can't tell you how super excited I am 
It's after Easter, but this is one of those things that starting today, our shepherding group's ministry is launching. I, I, we've been waiting for it for a couple of years, I think. It's, it's this vision of care, prayer, and support for every member. That every member is valued and seen and heard and known at church. And that, you, that as we launch this with our pastors and elders and the help of our deacons, that I want to encourage you and remind you that God's love for you and his call to follow him, that we don't do this by ourselves. We do it together. And that's what membership highlights, that we are the body of Christ and we belong to him. And together we encourage and support and help and pray and care for one another. And another beautiful way we do this is through small group. And if you're not a part of one, I want to encourage you to join one now or join us in the fall. But whatever you do, join community. And as we end, I want us to remember we serve a servant king. We have a king that went to the cross. Now think about that. What king would go and die among the scum of the earth? And be seen as such. That makes no sense. We have someone who gave up his life so that we might have it. We have someone who was rich in all of heaven's glory. And became poor so that we might be the co-inheritors of his kingdom. Tim Keller in one of his comments in his book, Jesus is King, says... No one has ever been deeply challenged by an act of the will. The only thing that could reforge and change a life at its root is love. I really, I really believe that. When you know someone truly loves you, man, that changes you. That really affects you. And I think one of the deepest needs that's going on around the world, no matter who you are, male, female, child, older, doesn't matter, that we long to be loved. It's what was intended by God. We lost that at the garden and at the fall. And Christ restores it. And he restores it beautifully as he demonstrates God's love for us. This was his plan. John Piper in his message said, quote, They read Mark 8.31, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And without any long exegesis, they see it. Must suffer. Must be rejected. Must be killed. And they find themselves worshiping. This was your son. This was your plan. This was your work. Your hand of in innocent suffering. Your hand in sinful rejection. Your hand in wicked murder. For me... My forgiveness, my everlasting happiness with you, the greatest gift at the highest cost to the least deserving. And millions of people find themselves bowing and saying, I love you. And we say that because we know that we have been so loved. Dear brothers and sisters, who would not want to follow such a servant king? Who would not want to lay down all things? I mean, do you really want to switch places with Jeff Bezos of Amazon? Do you think that's the life? Do you not know? Do you not see? If you've never known, if you've never seen, if you've never tasted the goodness of knowing this person named Jesus, I want to invite you 
All you have to do is simply sit and confess that we have sinned and that Jesus is the answer and that God sent him for a reason to make sure that you and I are forgiven from our sins and that whoever would follow after him and believe in him, that they would have life. Oh, but he will return one future day, not to serve, but to reign as king. The passage ends with the fact that he will come in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And I want to assure you that day will surely come. And what will be our response? Our response will be like the spirit and the bride at the end of Revelation. When the spirit and the bride cry out, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, this past weekend we celebrated your death, your burial, and your resurrection. We celebrated because we understood that it was a demonstration the final culmination of God's sovereign plan. It was revealed to us in scripture. And as we read it as a history for us, we are amazed that you included us in that plan. You thought of us somehow the least deserving at the greatest cost. Thank you so much, Lord, for loving us this way. And may your love truly transform each life that ever hears of the gospel of your story. And because we hear it, I pray that you would compel our hearts through your love to follow you each and every day as we deny ourselves and take up our cross daily to follow you. And may your name be honored until the day you return in the glory of your Father and the holy angels. May we follow you as your disciples. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.